This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by our Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group, part of S&P Global Commodity Insights. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personalized engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baby, and I'm here today with Mark Ferguson, an expert on metals and mining. Mark, how are you? Very good. Thank you, Hill. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. And and this this conversation actually, I can't remember if you and I talked about this or not, but it comes in response to outreach that we received from a listener. So Ishan in Boston, John and I have not met, but he reached out and, and said specifically that he would like to hear a conversation about metals and mining and its relation to ESG and, and all that is going on as the metals and mining industries become more important throughout the energy transition. Um, so I'm kind of excited that we're able to, to, to do this. And for all those listening now, that, that email address is energysense at sbglobal.com. So, so please reach out. Mark, so, so I guess just to, to help set the stage here, we do want to talk about metals and mining and, and as it relates that th- those industries as they relate to the energy transition. Uh, and I, you provided me some good background information to, to study ahead of this conversation. And it looks like we'll probably be focusing on lithium, cobalt, copper, and nickel as, as the four big products that are contributing to electric vehicles, solar panels, even wind. And so if maybe you can help us set the stage on on how the, the metals and mining industries are looking today and how energy transition priorities have influenced the position that we're sitting in right now. Absolutely, Hill. It has definitely been a period of not just the energy transition, but I would say a transition in focus for the metals and mining sector over the past couple of years. Certainly, the traditional focus for much of the demand for for the commodities we cover and the ones that you talked about really comes from sort of the overall economic outlook and the macroeconomic scene. But as energy transition has increasingly come to the fore uh, over the past two to three years, I would say we have seen a significant increase in interest around the impacts to commodities such as lithium, nickel, and cobalt from a batteries perspective, but also from copper for the wider grid, um, EV charging stations and such as well. So it has certainly been a period of transition and the outlooks for those commodities, despite some near-term headwinds around the macroeconomic conditions, are still very robust once you kind of get back past 2023. So it's definitely an exciting time in the metals and mining sector from that stance. And how how is each of the four of those? Uh, I know for, why don't we start with copper? Copper is used in, in all sorts of different things. Is the focus on energy transition and things like wind or solar or batteries or whatever else, is that a rounding error in the grand scheme of copper production or is it really a, a significant influence? 
It is absolutely a growing share of the demand for copper. Uh, when you think about the wind turbines, when you think about the grid infrastructure that has to be built out to support those renewables, be it solar or wind, there's a there's going to be a huge draw on copper. And I know some of the research that S&P Global has done in the past, recent past, has highlighted about that by 2035, there could be a significant deficit in the copper space on the order of 1.9 to 9.9 million tons. And so that's really pointing to some of the supply challenges that are going to emerge for copper in the very near future. And, and that's across the commodities we cover, it certainly is one of the the key metals to watch in that sense. And and copper, correct me if I'm wrong, but but the a, a, a I don't know if majority is the right word, but but a significant weighting of production is coming from Chile. And globally expiration, I'll say expiration success is down in terms of size discovery. Absolutely. Yes. I can it, certainly yeah, please go on. I can certainly touch on that. You know, every every year we do a review of major copper discoveries that have been found, and those would be anything that contains 500,000 metric tons of copper in reserves, resources, or past production. And we all we always try to relate that back to the year of discovery. And so, if you look at some of the charts that we've plotted, there's an, a a very large amount of copper that was found back in the 1990s in some of those Chilean deposits, which are now operating. Mm -hmm. But over the past 10 to 15 years, despite at times some fairly substantial copper exploration budgets, we have not really seen very many new large deposits being discovered. Instead, what we're seeing is that companies are choosing to explore their existing known deposits to try to make them a little bit bigger or looking at and around their existing operations. And so while that might help increase the endowment of some of those discoveries made many years ago, it's not contributing to new discoveries that will be sort of that next suite of copper mines that are very important to meeting that growing demand from the energy transition that I mentioned previously. Would you call this an underinvestment problem that more investment solves, or is it perhaps larger structural where, where the, the easy copper has been found and, and it's going to just be a lot more money for a lot smaller deposits? I think there is, it's, it's twofold. Certainly we have seen a shift in the type of exploration being done over the past 25 years. From, you know, back in the 90s, uh, companies used to budget about half of their money towards early stage exploration. Now that's down under 30%. And some of that is a structural evolution of the industry, right? So a lot of, I'll call it greenfields terrain has been explored to a certain extent. And then as some of these smaller companies, junior companies find a deposit, they want to try to grow that deposit a little bit more just to see if it will attract another intermediate company who might decide to purchase that project and build it into a mine. But what it really states is that it's going to be very difficult to find those Kamoa Kakulas, the Oyu Tolgois that are at the largest, the, the upper tier of copper mines currently. It's going to be hard to meet the demand from the supply, from those types of large-scale mines. It is probably going to be sort of a much smaller size scale of operation that's going to have to contribute to the overarching uh, supply needs. 
and will it, will there continue to be a concentration in Chile in, in terms of our outlook, or, or do we start to see that market uh, positioning weaken? I would not be surprised, and I'd have to dig into the numbers a little bit, but I would not be surprised if some of the output from Chile starts to decline. There is certainly pressure on grades in Chile as some of those deposits that were found in the 1990s and have been actively mined for many years as the grades start to decline. And it's very difficult from a technical standpoint to increase uh, production when you really have to increase throughput just to maintain current production levels at declining grades. So there probably will be some softening in terms of Chile's position in the, to- in the global scene, but it, it, it's very difficult to say exactly where that next suite of sort of the mid-tier mines is going to come from in the 10-year time frame. It's very challenging. When you think about all of the permitting, regulations, ESG-centric concerns that many you know, Western countries certainly have at the fore, and even increasingly in developing nations such as Peru, which is also a big copper producer, there's a lot of challenges to bring on new mines when there can be substantial opposition. I, I want to come back to that for all of these metals, but, but before we before we go there, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the supply concentrations. So, so mm-hmm. Indonesia and nickel. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it looks like Indonesia is ramping up to, to be a, a perhaps the most significant producer in nickel output, and I think that began that that trajectory began around 2020, so, so maybe two years ago. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about nickel and Indonesia's influence on nickel? Absolutely. Nickel, uh, sorry, excuse me. Indonesia implemented a ban on nickel ore exports because yeah. Indonesia used to be a primary supplier of ore into China, who then turned that ore into primary nickel. And so it's only been in the past few years that we've really seen the primary nickel, sort of the uh, upgrading of the metals and mining sector in Indonesia come to the fore. And the output of that sort of processed nickel has really ramped up in recent years. And we expect that to continue for at least another couple of years. In contrast, we've certainly seen a dip in the production from Chinese producers as well, in part because they're not able to source uh, as much of the Indonesian ore as they, they used to. But to a certain extent, instead of just letting that market go, We've seen a lot of activity in the Indonesia space where Chinese companies have come in and done joint venture partners or build their own plants to sort of process that nickel ore in country, and then it gets exported from there. So Indonesia is definitely going to continue to play a major role in the supply of nickel in the next few years and probably will for quite some time just because of the, the resource endowment that is, is in, in uh, Indonesia. And do the exploration concerns that we talked about with copper apply to nickel as well? Or does it look like the, you know, from what we can see going forward, that nickel supply will continue to be available? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it's not as critical as as copper exploration efforts, I would say. But that said, you know, you, you kind of have two types of nickel deposits and it's dependent that the type of deposit really dictates to a certain degree whether it comes out as a class one nickel product or a class two product. Class one products can feed into that battery supply chain quite easily. The class two can take some more refining and can be take some additional steps to get it to be sort of battery grade. 
And what we have seen from a, a discoveries perspective is that we're not seeing as many new sulfide, uh, nickel sulfide discoveries, which are those deposits that really feed into the class one nickel content output. So we have not seen too many of those, and it, it would therefore dictate that the class two would have to be upgraded to a certain extent to feed into the, the battery metals the supply chain. Okay, and that, that becomes more of a cost problem rather than a technological problem? It can be a cost problem, but it also, we've done some research on it, and it's also an emissions problem because it's, okay. you know, it, it can be very carbon intensive to process that into a, a battery grade output, right? So it's twofold. And then you think about just Indonesia's from an ESG standpoint, mm -hmm. they may not have the same sort of regulations as some other countries. And so when we think further downstream, you know, the, the uh, consumers of that nickel, they may be faced with supply chain choices that they would prefer not to. Okay. Well, and then I guess two two more, and then let's dive into that. Mm -hmm. But the Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo and cobalt, mm -hmm. it, it looks that wouldn't seem to be more than any of these other metals that we've talked about. That that the DRC has a huge, huge proportion, something like eighty percent plus of, of, uh, of yes. cobalt output. Absolutely, that's that is fundamentally in the nature of the resource endowment of the country. It's very, it has a very large copper cobalt concentration, and it is very difficult to see a path for another substantial source or country feeding into that resource endowment. Yes, there is some in, I believe, in Australia and maybe some other jurisdictions, but it's not going to eat into the DRC's share of the total the global supply of cobalt, certainly over the next four or five years, based on our forecasts. And is that supply with plenty of room to run in terms of growth? As far as we know, there does seem to be quite a trajectory for growth in uh, cobalt from the DRC. And certainly that's another country where there's a lot of Chinese actors at play trying to okay. build up some of those mines. And so there can be some opaqueness to that those efforts but we still see the drc being the main driver for supply for quite some time okay and then the last one before we get into some of the esg and environmental concerns is lithium that, that lithium relative to the other three metals that lithium seems to be fairly dispersed australia i think perhaps number yeah. one but not by a hefty margin yeah, I mean, Australia has a fairly strong growth trajectory still, but then you think about a country like Argentina. We recently we recently did some research that identified, I think, I think it's about 14 late stage assets that could kind of come through the queue over the next five to 10 years time frame. Uh, obviously, as to uh, you know, finish off some feasibility studies and get through the permitting and such. But you know, Argentina is certainly going to be an upcomer in that space. Uh, there's also other countries, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Canada really starts to come into the fold a little bit farther behind or a little bit farther out than Argentina, but they still will start to ramp up production in the in the next couple of years. And that could tie into some of the emerging regional needs for metals that are critical to the battery supply chain in the U.S., which has implications with the Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA that a lot of these, in order to qualify for some of the, the tax benefits of the IRA, these metals have to come from the U.S. and, and or uh, what free trade agreement allies, is that right? Exactly, exactly. And so that's where the likes of Canada, 
Mexico, and maybe a few other countries can really start to play a role in feeding the, the, the raw materials that are needed for those batteries. And it should incentivize additional exploration as well as a build out of that supply pipeline in the coming years. We certainly we don't imagine, we don't believe it's going to be sufficient to meet the the US's needs in terms of batteries be it for the passenger plug in electric vehicle growth or for sort of energy storage needs which are an increasingly important component of overall demand for batteries mm-hmm. but we do see maybe later on this decade that they start to meet some of those thresholds so there's definitely a a challenge to in that sense just from permitting and the regulatory aspect of it too so you know even domestically in the u.s there's been a lot of talk about permitting reform and i think that is going to be key to getting some of these projects up and running and it is a difficult balance that both parties arguably are going to have to come to some form of a compromise but geologically the resources there if we can get the above ground issues straightened out for some commodities, yes, it can be, a, you know, there's certainly some copper deposits. I know there's some lithium. Nickel, I think, is a little bit more difficult domestically in the U.S., but, you know, I know um, recently GM signed a, some form of an offtake agreement with Valet centered on their Ontario operations, and that would be for nickel. So there, there's already some aspirations among the sort of downstream consumers to tap into potential sources of of the commodities that they're going to require. Okay, so so let's go into the, the ESG part of the conversation, and, and we've talked a lot about some of the developing countries that are host to some of these resources. And we, we've just re- recently talked about the developed countries being the North America countries that, that have some of these resources. I'm looking at this for, from the perspective of somebody who's been working in energy for a long time and, and sees fossil fuels, and, and you and I can see how Canadian oil has mm-hmm. garnered headlines with, uh, I suppose, most recently the, the Keystone Pipeline that was on again, off again, on again, off again, mm-hmm. and I think off again for the moment. What, what are some of the, uh, for the moment or forever, how are you looking at the mining sector today? and? Seeing the, the one that there is a, a huge push from policymakers somewhat on all sides to embrace a clean energy future, quote unquote, that sure. in, in a way doesn't go into the same level of detail of the, the impact of mining and metals. Sure. The leaders seem to say, all right, we, we need the batteries. I'm not going to worry about how it comes out of the ground, but we need the batteries. Does that, how does it get out of the ground question become more paramount as some of these projects get proposed? Absolutely does. We've seen a lot of opposition, I'll say, to mining in general. And I think that the difficult proposition that a lot of people in the metals and mining sector face is making it clear to people that are are fundamentally opposed to mining for whatever reason that they need to understand that without these critical minerals we're not going to get around a, 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 an energy transition in a reasonable amount of time and sort of decar- that de- decarbonization effort is just not going to happen in a reasonable amount of time. And certainly in Canada, you know, the government recognizes right now that exploration in the mining sector is an important component of our of our total economy and they are encouraging exploration companies to come to the to the fore 
I believe there's a new bill about to pass in uh, the Canadian government which would increase an expiration tax credit to 30% focused on critical minerals. So what that does is effectively allow junior exploration companies, those that don't have any source of revenue beyond the equity market support, to gain an additional credit just from the money that they spend on the ground domestically within Canada. And you know, I would anticipate that's probably going to give some support to additional copper exploration, additional nickel and lithium. Cobalt could be another story. It's a little bit harder. Usually it's tied in with some of these other commodities, but it should encourage additional exploration and to try to advance that pipeline within Canada. Now, whether or not, you know, they can get it through the permitting process, mm-hmm. I can I can say that certainly the permitting process in Canada is, is more streamlined than in the U.S. They have a target of, I believe, two years to review sort of a proposal to build a mine. Sometimes that can be delayed, but there's certainly is some motivation within the government to assist in the overall energy transition by feeding commodities to countries such as the US, but also to Europe too, because I know not too long ago, I believe the German there was a German group that was over and they made an announcement about trying to tap into the natural resource endowment of Canada to boost their car sales as well. So it's it's a there's definitely motivation on the on on the government side. There will be opposition mm-hmm. to, to mining, despite best intentions. But I think within Canada, there's probably a little bit more of a a remit to advance some of those operations through to fruition. So, and where where in Canada is the resource? Say if we're thinking about NIMBY or not in my backyard protest and the need to export because I'm, I'm assuming Canada can't support, it doesn't have the demand to support it, it's the, the mining, the extraction industry in the way that it needs to. Is it West Coast where you can export to Asia, the East Coast where you can export to Europe or in between where you can export to the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's certainly some large uh, copper gold porphyries in British Columbia and uh, a fair bit of exploration going on centered on those. Uh, Certainly the Canadian Shield, which encompasses a lot of Ontario, Quebec, and parts of northern Canada. Certainly there's aspiration to tap into deposits that could be there. There are certainly some infrastructure, potential infrastructure challenges just given the remote nature of that. And on top of that, there's also some First Nations type concerns. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that the First Nations, a lot of First Nations in, in Canada also understand the, the benefit that mining can bring to to, to local. And, uh, and it certainly has been something that companies are keen to advance and support too. So, And how have you seen how has company behavior changed with the emerging of supply chain concerns, both on a reliance on a single producer? I'm thinking about Europe's reliance on Russia for natural gas and seeing some of these charts with, you know, whether it's the Democratic Republic of Congo or Chile or Indonesia, mm-hmm. the, the reliance on a single producer producing country exposes one to market risk, regardless of that country's intentions. Are people trying to, or are companies trying to diversify? I definitely think they are. And I think of all sectors, I would say the junior exploration sector is very adept at shifting their focus 
maybe last year they were exploring a gold copper project suddenly that becomes a copper gold project if the Mm -hmm. narrative fits and they're going to go back and take a look at some of the assets that could feed into the emerging energy transition needs and i say that because they watch metals prices like many of us do and we have historically seen that as metals prices rise with about a one-year lag you inevitably see a rise in the expiration budget allocated to those commodities and so it is just the nature of the junior exploration company to shift their focus towards the hot topic certainly for lithium and cobalt we've seen that expiration budgets have soared in the past couple of years and the number of active exploring companies has also jumped and so it will take some time for those earlier stage projects or some of those smaller projects to evolve and get through that permitting process, but they are going to have a material impact on the overall supply in, say, five to ten years' time. Whether it's enough to meet the overall needs, I think is a, a, a bit of a challenge, but there's certainly a lot of players getting active in that space when you think about how lithium prices have just been high for quite some time. So in the last year and a half or so, and we don't foresee a material drop in the price in the near term, too. Are you seeing new company formation? Yes, I would say that. I can't think of any company off the top of my head, but certainly just the number of companies Mm -hmm. that are active in the space. I believe IPOs have been picking up. And that would be mostly focused on the ASX and the TSX. Okay. A lot of those. That's Australia and Toronto. Yes, exactly. And that's where a lot of those exploration companies are listed and seek to raise their funds. So. Okay. And how about access to capital? Again, if I look at the oil industry as an analog, the the independents, which I would compare to the, the juniors that you were just describing, had real access to capital concerns for a little while. Some of that due to the inability to return cash to shareholders, but but I think some of it more broadly on ESG and, and investors somewhat reluctance to get into wh- whether independent or, or larger oil and gas operators long lead time projects with environmental concerns or are investors looking at the mining industry as an environmental concern or an environmental enabler for, for lack of a better word, given the need for all these metals and batteries. There, there certainly has been a, I would say, an uptick in concern centered on ESG-related efforts uh, within the mining industry. I know we've, you know, some of our news reporters have recently written about how CEOs' salaries and bonuses are increasingly tied to ESG performance of the specific con- companies. So it certainly is very topical and will continue to be. If if I step back and just talk about the capital needed for exploration, past six months, nine months definitely has been a bit of a challenge for those smaller companies to raise money to conduct their exploration. But generally speaking, when institutional investors look at those uh, exploration companies, they know they're not going to be facing a dividend. They're going to be looking to see if the if the company is going to find something and then turn around and be sold for uh, quite a premium down the road. And they're kind of looking for that longer term footprint, I would say, in the in the junior sector. But 
just coming back again to how much money has been raised recently, it definitely has been on the slide and that could impact negatively expiration budgets into 2023. And I think a lot of that was just centered on sliding metals prices up until mm-hmm. a month or two ago, ago, just decreased equity market interest. Perhaps they had other focal points given the market turmoil that was kind of happening uh, the middle of this year. But I would be surprised if that persists throughout 2023 once we kind of get through this macroeconomic malaise, I guess you would call it. See the other side of that equation. People will return to the fore from the sense that, look, we need these metals for that energy transition narrative. And that's going to really support prices going forward, too. And of the four metals that we've talked about, is one or more of them more important than the other three? Ooh, or wow, energy transition. Yes, if I have to pick a metal, my other staff are going to be like, why did you pick that one over <laughs> mine? But uh, honestly, I mean, I think copper is definitely high up there on that. But lithium is also very important to the overall battery scene, and we don't anticipate that to change anytime soon. I think from a battery chemistry standpoint, I think people are looking to diversify a little bit away from cobalt, if at all possible, is something that's been kind of talked about. But lithium will remain at the fore for quite some time in that sense. And so I'd have to, I'll throw it out there, copper and lithium would be the two that I would keep my eye on. And cobalt, you mentioned diversify away from it. Is that known where you would go? Well, it would be into more nickel intensive. So okay, nickel, nickel could benefit to a certain extent, but also you, you could see an uptick in LFP, lithium iron phosphate batteries. Okay. Um, right. So that would be a, another alternative to just extricate yourself from having the cost associated with cobalt or any ESG related concerns you might have with having a battery that has cobalt in it too. Okay. All right. Well, maybe just to, to kind of wrap it up on, on an outlook for the next six to 12 months, as we're, we're talking today on de- on December 12th, given the scenario that, that you just laid out and some of the questions that we've answered, what, what are some things that we should really pay attention to e- either at the, the metal level or at the country level or at the producer level that may signify incremental change, significant incremental change, positive or negative? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act was certainly something that sparked a lot of interest for companies that had a project within a free trade aligned country. And I think you'll see that continue. And it begs the question how policies within those countries are apt to shift. I mentioned that new 30% tax credit in Canada. Uh, There could be additional policy incentives within Canada, perhaps Australia, perhaps Mexico. But also, what does it do for Europe? the EU, are they going to come to the plate with additional incentive to try to capture some of that supply chain and some of that capital that's going to be needed to build that next set of mines, to not just build, but also to find that next set of mines. And so you could certainly see some more policy initiatives that could spur on additional investment in the metals and mining sector announced, I would say, over the next 12 months. And arguably, I think metals prices, it's, just, it's a bit tricky to say, but metals prices seem to have hit a, hit a floor in recent months. Obviously, things can change on a dime as we've seen through the course of this year, but I wouldn't anticipate a major retrenchment in prices again. 
I think that the energy transition narrative, supply constraints, the emerging demand from the energy transition is going to maintain many commodity prices above historical levels. So when we think about five, six years ago when prices were substantially lower than what they are now, I just don't foresee us going back to those lower prices anytime soon. And the costs are managed in a way that the producers benefit from this, the miners benefit from this, or is this a situation where it's it's a quote unquote boom and the cost of extraction is so high that the benefit that the miners themselves aren't making the type of money that might be implied by high prices? Well, yeah, you know, the metals and mining sector coming out of the sort of peak, I'd say 2011, 2012, they certainly shifted fo- focus from a growth pattern to a lower cost production, capital conservation efforts through to recent years, arguably. They've kept a very, they've tried to keep a very tight ship. Now, the past year or two, certainly broad-based inflation pressures have impacted costs, and we've started to see that rise in some of the reporting and also some of the data that we develop on our own. And I would anticipate that's going to be an issue into 2023, just the raw material input cost for those operations is rising. But that said, I still think many producers are, you know, they may not be seeing the margins they saw, say, early this year when prices, some prices were at all-time highs, but they're still in a very good position uh, to, to maintain cash flow and have relatively high margins. Okay. All right. Well, that seems like a good place, uh, an optimistic place for us to, to, to leave this. So, Mark, thanks so very much for, for making time for this. And Ishan, if you're listening, I hope that was on point. And please reach out for more information. And Mark, I hope we can do this again uh, to go into more detail on news. Happy to do it. Thank you very much, Hill. Thanks, Mark. This podcast contains insights and data copyrighted by S&P Global. To learn more about our solutions or read additional market research, visit us at spglobal.com.